This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily, the deep learning sibling of our multi-agent weekly podcast. I am your host, Alex Andreu. My guest today is Michael Waldridge, Head of Department, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Oxford, a Senior Research Fellow at Hertford College, and recently appointed Artificial Intelligence Program Co-Director at the Alan Turing Institute. His research focuses primarily on multi-agent systems, drawing on ideas from fields as diverse as logic and game theory to philosophy and architecture. He is also a bit of a crossover artist, having written two books intended for general consumption by muggles like me. His latest, The Road to Conscious Machines, The Story of AI, which I kept thinking of as Al, does not only make this complicated subject simple and accessible in the way that only a real expert can, but is written with a considerable amount of unapologetic love for the field. Welcome, Mike. (laughs) It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Let us dive straight in with a quickie. What is AI? And more importantly, a question which you open your book with, what isn't it? It's a very difficult question to answer. So the first thing to say is that uh, artificial intelligence, AI, is a very, very, very broad field. It includes at one end, it includes philosophers who are thinking about, you know, fundamental questions. Can machines have the same status as sort of conscious, self-aware, autonomous beings that we have? I mean, that's one part of the AI story. And at the other extreme, it's got people building robots that are going to go and do things in factories uh, and people building driverless cars and so on. So it's a very, very broad field. And with in that field, there are many different views of what AI is. So the kind of slightly irritating truth is that, you know, nobody has any uh, crisp, universally accepted definition. But for me, what AI basically is about is, is basically just extending the range of what computers can do to get computers to do things which currently require brains, animal brains, human brains, but more generally animal brains and potentially nervous systems and bodies, and for which standard computing techniques, standard programming techniques that you will have learned uh, if you were at school or doing an introductory programming course, don't give you any clues. It's about getting machines to do things which currently require brains, brains and nervous systems and potentially bodies. Mm. Now, I I said at the introduction that you write with love for your subject. Your book is full of a sense of wonder and real 
affection for what seems to me the pretty thankless task of trying to put chaos into some sort of order. What drew you to the field? So uh, what drew me to the field was, firstly, it's a field that just attracts ideas from so many different areas. I mean, in contemporary AI, there are ideas from philosophy, for sure. There are ideas from economics, from logic, from psychology, from neuroscience, from robotics. All of these different areas have got something to say about AI, and AI has something to say to them. And so that, I think, is a, a wonderful thing to be in, you know, to be in a field which is so sort of uh, connected to so many different areas. But I think more than that, it's like, I mean, the analogy I would make is that, you know, where we are with AI is kind of where the nuclear physicists were in kind of 1900, where the results were beginning to come in and they were beginning to sort of beginning to develop their theories. But, you know, the, the, the territory was wide open, right? And AI is the same. There are so much unexplored territory. And as a researcher, as somebody who wants to make a career exploring new territory that makes it you know a really 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 nice space to work in the last thing you want to do really as a researcher is to work in a field which where every every tiny little piece of the territory has already been explored and so there's Mm. there's just lots of unexplored vistas still in artificial intelligence and that makes it incredibly rewarding to work in you you identify the point at which the science of ai took a bit of a leap forward as a switch from top down to bottom up. So instead of trying to tell a computer everything I know about X, instead I feed the computer all the data about X and let the system figure it out. Yeah. Um, can you give an example of sort of everyday application of that that listeners might have come into contact with? So the, the, the top down versus bottom line, the top down approach basically says, so consider a task like automated translation, translating French into English. How are you going to do that? Well, the top down approach would say that the way that you do that is you go and talk to an expert translator. Um, and you find out how they do it. What is the knowledge that they use in this automated translation process? And so the top-down approach is basically predicated on this idea that the key to intelligence is knowledge. And what all we have to do to build intelligent machines is to extract that knowledge from human experts and then give that to a machine. And for some problems, that works quite well. So, for example, in the medical domain, there are lots of systems that work. Um, for example, a famous system uh, called mycin, which is about diagnosing the causes of blood diseases in, in humans. And th- what they did is they went and talked to human expert doctors and they found out how they would diagnose blood diseases in humans. But for some problems, that approach, the knowledge-based approach, as it's sometimes called, just didn't turn out to be very good. And the most important of those is anything to do with perception. And perception means basically interpreting the, 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 the sensor information that you're getting, you know, and the sensor information for a, for a driverless car, for example, might include cameras and infrared rangefinders and LIDAR, laser radar, and a whole bunch of other sensing equipment, mm-hmm. and then interpreting that to make sense of it to, so that it knows where it is and what's around it. And the knowledge-based approach just gave us a symbolic approach. The top-down approach gave us was just really not very good at that. 
And so there it turned out that what we needed was something completely different. And there what we needed was the, the bottom-up approach. And as I say, with the bottom-up approach, just basically what's called machine learning, and listeners that have followed anything to do with AI will have heard of deep learning, which is the big new technology over the past decade. Basically, the idea there is that instead of extracting the knowledge uh, from a human expert and giving it to the machine, what you do is you show the machine what you want it to do. You demonstrate, in, in, essentially, and uh, you train the machine by demonstrating what you want it to do. And training is really, really, really crucial to uh, uh, to these machine learning approaches. And it's that area that's seen breakthroughs in the last 15 years. That's where we've seen a lot of progress, which we need to be careful about when we talk about that progress. I mean, I've learned that when I get overexcited about AI and I say, we've had real breakthroughs, what people hear is kind of robot butlers tomorrow. And that's not where we are. Uh, But uh, nevertheless, we've seen real progress. (laughs) We should have had them by the year 2000. I'm I'm old enough to remember the promise. (laughs) So we've seen real progress, but we need to be careful about that progress. But it's the progress that we've seen has been in this sort of bottom up approaches, what's called machine learning. This will sound weird to listeners, but I would encourage you to go and seek out a video on on YouTube. DeepMind playing Atari Breakout was a big moment for you. Explain why. Yeah, so it was clear by sort of 2012 that machine learning in particular, this particular part of AI that's to do with learning how to do tasks without being told explicitly. It was clear there was a lot of progress, but I mean, I've heard lots of stories about progress in AI over the years, and they're all documented in in, in the book <laughs> in exhaustive detail. So I was kind of just naturally quite skeptical, but a colleague showed me, uh, pointed me to a demonstration that had just come out from DeepMind. And DeepMind just sort of a year earlier were basically unknown. They were a tiny little company. Nobody had heard of this company based in London. And then they'd been suddenly acquired in some kind of huge deal by Google that we were all just staggered by. But I hadn't seen anything that they'd done. And I found this very, very strange. But then I looked at this work. And so what DeepMind did uh, is the following. They took a games console, an Atari games console from the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s. I remember them well. <laughs> I spent far too much time playing with these things. And this console has about 50 games that come with it that you can buy for it. And what they did is they wrote a single program which learned to play these games. So one program that learned to play. Now, if you were going to use the kind of the top-down approach, then the way that you do it is you would go to a game player, you'd find out how they play this game, and then you would give that knowledge to the computer. That's not what DeepMind did at all. All their program saw was the screen, exactly the same screen that you or I see, uh, and the current score of the game. That's the only information it had. Nobody told it about any of those games. It just saw the screen and the score. And what it learned to do just by playing these games repeatedly was it learned to play uh, more than half of them at human level ability. And some, and Breakout is the best example of that, essentially at superhuman level, better than a human being can play Mm. this game. But the way it did it was just by repeatedly playing this game. And so it would start out by playing more or less at random. It would just move the joystick at random in the game of Breakout. But then when it gets a point... Basically, when it gets a when it gets a score in uh, in breakout and in machine learning, we say it gets a reward. What that does is it makes it more likely for the program to do the same thing again in the same circumstances. 
that basically is one type of machine learning. It just, yeah. if you get a reward, if you do something good, I'm going to be more likely to do the same thing in the same circumstances. And just by repeatedly playing, it learned to play uh, more than half of these games at human level ability and some at superhuman level ability. Yeah. But crucially, nobody told it anything about these games and it didn't have any of our human experience to draw upon. It had never seen a video game before. It had no knowledge of those whatsoever. Um, so that was, for me, that was really, really quite remarkable. And I say the crucial thing is all it saw was the screen and the score. So on Breakout, basically, it worked out uh, without having its mates around it shouting at it to do it, like I did when I was <laughs> when I was nine, to make a tunnel on the side and put the ball inside so that it just bounced on the tiles and eliminated loads of them very, very quickly, didn't it? Absolutely. And it's quite a remarkable video when you watch that. I mean, I've, I've used that example in my lectures a lot and it never fails to get a gasp from the audience whenever <laughs> people realize what's actually going on, that it learned this trick. This is a 40 year old uh, video game and that that trick was long forgotten, right? The designers, I think the, the deep mind engineers weren't even alive when that game was, when that game was doing the rounds. So, you know, that was a really remarkable example of how this AI could learn to do something distinctive mm. and, and, and unique. Now, w one of the examples you also give in some of your lectures is a very funny list of the sort of information we use without thinking in a single day that goes something along the lines of red taps produce hot water, the sky is blue, you can't eat Kansas, cats are pets, but not always. And it's a wonderful way to illustrate all the background information that we have access to without thinking about it. So what are the main obstacles to progress currently? Well, that's a very nice example to pick on. And where that came from was a project which was started in the 1980s and to, a, to some extent still goes on because there is a company to, to, to commercialize the software. But the vision was that actually the, the trick to solving AI, to making, to get, getting us to the grand dream of AI, um, machines that can do everything that a human being could do, all we have to do is to give the machine everything uh, that a reasonably educated human being knows about their world as they go about their lives. But when you start to begin to think about what that involves, those those examples that you gave are just a few examples to illustrate the, the, the different scope of things that you would need to know. The project founded, really, because it just didn't make any serious headway on that challenge. That project, and it's called the Psych Project, CYC, is often regarded as a kind of a, an example of a failed project in, uh, in AI. I mean, in, in some sense, it's notorious as a, as a failed project. Although it did some very cool things, it didn't deliver anything like what was hoped for it. And, and your entire book, in a, in a way, is a, a list of gl glorious failures that that bring us to successes, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, as I say in the beginning of the book, you know, if you're expecting that science is kind of orderly progress um, from <laughs> ignorance to enlightenment, you're in for a bit of a shock because that's absolutely is not the way, or not the way it's turned out in AI. We've had lots of dead ends, areas that have really taken off and and then been discovered just not really to pan out. But going back to the psych project, I mean, so what that was that was that was the top down approach. You give the machine all of the knowledge. 
Um, so the, the, the bottom up approach, as I say, the sort of machine learning approach, it's, it's turned out to work very well with problems to do with perception, but actually it also has limitations. And I feel, and many other researchers, I think it's, it's now a fairly widely accepted view. At some point, those two different approaches have to come together. They have mm. to meet somewhere in the middle. I mean, because they both have something to offer. Um, and if you look at what human beings do and how human beings learn, we do, a, you know, the, the, perhaps the, the dominant mode of learning in our lives, certainly when we're younger, is the, the kind of the bottom up approaches. But actually, we make quite a lot of use of knowledge. You know, we read yeah. books, we read articles, you know, we, we listen to podcasts which give us information about the world and we learn from that. And our parents tell us, do that, don't do that. Exactly, yeah. So I think those approaches have to come together somehow. But the big question is, how are they going to come together? And I think mm. nobody really knows that. Going back to that list, to one of the bits of knowledge in that list, the sky is blue, brings us nicely, I think, onto qualia, because the perception of Color is equale. Now, equale is a philosophical concept that the subjective cannot be verified. So you and I might agree that the sky is blue, but there is no way to confirm that what I see as blue and what you see as blue are one and the same things. And we couldn't explain blue to someone who had never experienced it without reference to other blue things or other colors. How do we get over that? How can the subjective be converted into mathematical? Well, I think what you're, you're pointing to is one of the big unsolved mysteries in science. So qualia, I mean, the, the idea of, um, of, of qualia relates to a, a much bigger idea, which is when we think about consciousness, human consciousness, for example, um, it's a hard subject to think about. And for one of the reasons that you've already identified, um, that I'm not sure, I can't be certain that my conscious experience is anything like your conscious experience, even if we use the same words to describe it, like, as you say, mm. like blue. But subjective experience seems to be one of the features that we can sort of, you know, we do experience things from a subjective point of view. But the big mystery is how do the physical processes that take place in the brain, the certain physical processes uh, in the brain, give rise to subjective experience, experience from one's personal point of view, one's personal, private, mental point of view. And bluntly, we haven't got a clue. We really don't know. That's one of the big mysteries in science. When We will answer that. I think there's no, I don't, you know, there are some people out there, some very serious thinkers who just say, this is going to be a mystery forever. We will never understand this. I don't believe that. I don't believe that because while I think human beings are wonderful and distinctive and the most marvelous things in all of creation, we are nothing special from the point of view of the universe. We're just a bunch of atoms that bump up against each other even if we don't understand quite how they're doing that. And so I think we will get there. We will ultimately understand how these certain physical processes in the brain and the body and the nervous system give rise to subjective experience. When we do that, I think the idea that machines have subjective experiences, uh, we will have an answer to that question. I suspect whether or not machines can, and I suspect the answer will be yes, they can, I have no reason for believing that other than I would like to believe it. And I can't see any reason why it wouldn't be true. But I think when we do understand that, I think that will demystify what is, as I say, at the moment, one of the biggest mysteries. Mm. 
Now, as well as the the affection that shines through the book about your field, there's also an occasional sense of annoyance, a sense that AI gets a bad rap. So let's very quickly talk about your pet hate, the sky, <laughs> the Skynet scenario, and the singularity. Can you explain a little bit about? Well, it's not so much as a pet hate. It's just that the the, the public debate about uh, AI often veers to to those scenarios. It's very understandable why. I mean, so the Skynet scenario is the scenario from the Terminator movies. Now, to be clear, um, you know, the first two Terminator movies I think are absolutely marvelous movies. They're amongst my my favorite movies, <laughs> and the Skynet scenario. Scenario: What happens in the Skynet scenario is that a computer is given control of the U.S. Uh, nuclear weapons arsenal, but the, the computer very rapidly becomes uh, conscious and self-aware and decides to eliminate humanity, which it then does with with or tries to do with nuclear weapons. And uh, it's a brilliant piece of filmmaking, and it's a wonderful story. But it's not grounded in any sort of scientific evidence or theory. It's science fiction. It's literally science fiction. Mm. And so I don't lose sleep over the Skynet scenario. Um, there are lots of things that I lose sleep about, right? I mean, and actually nuclear weapons is one of them. But I don't think we need AI to um, uh, to make mistakes with, with nuclear weapons. <laughs> I suspect that we could we can do that on, on our own. And so my frustration is really that that – Firstly, is giving people something to worry about, which I think they don't need to worry about. The Skynet scenario, I don't think is a realistic scenario. And secondly, it distracts from what I think are the concerns that we should have about AI, the stuff which is affecting people probably today. So that's where the, that's where the frustration comes from. Okay, so, so, so what aspects of artificial intelligence development should rightly cause concern? Um, so there's a big long list of these. I mean, I think um, after after the sort of the killer robot scenario, the number one is employment. Um, and there is this kind of meme out there that we're on the verge of kind of mass unemployment because the machines are getting smart enough that they're going to make uh, skilled laborers um, unemployed. I think the story there is a bit nuanced. Um, I, th- there will be people that lose their jobs to AI, but actually that's nothing new. The automation of human labor has been going on throughout human history, right? The very first time somebody geared up a, an ox to a plow, you know, back in prehistory, that was automating human labor. Mm. Um, most obviously in the Industrial Revolution, that was when we saw it on a very rapid and very wide scale, people being moved from essentially cottage industries into factory places uh, as part of some big industrial process. And then even more recently, when the microprocessor became widely available at the end of the 70s and the 80s, and I vividly remember the debate at the time, it was exactly the same tone of debate, the fear that this was going to make large numbers of people unemployed. And to a certain extent, it did. But actually, the upshot of that new technology was that it created far more jobs and far more wealth than it eliminated. The tragedy is that the wealth that was created and the jobs that were created were not necessarily in the places that they were lost. So, I mean, it is one of the one of the ironies of sort of industrial history. I think that, you know, the north of England in the mills of northern England, which were the center of the first industrial revolution, were the people exactly the industries that got hit with automation of of labor by microprocessors in the late 70s and early 80s. It's it's a nuanced story. And I think the the truth is 
far more than people losing their jobs to um, to AI, what we're going to see is that the nature of work changes. And for those of us, which let's face it, is, is probably most of us these days who work in offices, um, we're basically spending a lot of our day in front of a computer, um, filling in forms and sending emails and so on. We're going to find that AI places a plays a much more prominent role in the way that we the way that we work. And I think it says very interesting things about a society that, you know, all those stories start from an anxiety about mass unemployment rather than a relish of possibly mass leisure time. It could be that if automation can produce the things we need to produce, we're going to have a lot more time to ourselves. But we seem to define ourselves by the product of our work. And I think that's why redundancy I don't mean it in the employment sense. I mean it in the general sense. Becoming yeah. redundant work-wise is such a deep-seated fear. Um, Anthony, Anthony Lewandowski founded a religion based on the idea of worshipping AI. Is the flip side of that that scare stories about AI are also, in a way, crypto-religious, that because they touch on things like what is consciousness and what makes me me, they awake something that is a little bit more lizard brain than... than. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a very good question. I think the truth is that um, this, I mean, I think where those scare stories come from is a very, very deep-rooted idea in human history to do with the idea that we create something and then we lose control. And, you know, you don't have to look very hard to find examples of uh, of stories along those lines back through human history. So the most famous example is Frankenstein. It's exactly that story. You know, you create this thing and it becomes the monster mm. and you lose control. And if you look at, you know, I think the Frankenstein story is one of the very resonant kind of ancestors of the, the kind of the, the, the dream of AI. But there are many, many, many others. And, and so it's a very deep rooted idea in, in human society, this fear of creating something and then losing control of it. We build something which we think is going to do work for us and then it somehow takes over um, or destroys us. One final thing, even though the book is, you know, a memoir of the science of AI. Reading it and exploring this world had a remarkable effect on me in that the thing I found myself feeling most often was a sense of wonder at how complex and honestly how marvelous our brains are. Was that deliberate? Is that something you feel too while you work in this field? Do you stop and go, we really are? Remarkable machines. Absolutely. And uh, it was an interesting exercise for me. I mean, the thing is, when you're a PhD student, I mean, I was started my PhD in 1989. And a PhD student, you're desperately trying to understand what, what's, what's going on. But then you just become accustomed to the idea and take them for granted. And you work within an idea where you work within a paradigm and nobody questions that and so on. But the recent progress in AI and... The questions about, you know, is this a breakthrough which is going to take us to AGI, for example? And is this now, have we now found the right path? All of those questions made me go back and reflect on everything that I believed I understood about artificial intelligence. So what I came to the conclusion 
was this, and this is one of the reasons why I think AGI is, is not imminent. I mean, if you consider me, right, a human being, I'm 54 years old, so I was born into this world 54 years ago. And so every moment of my life since then, uh, every waking moment of my life since then, I've been busy learning about this world that we inhabit, right? Planet mm. Earth and that, and that tiny, narrow part of planet Earth from ground level to a couple of thousand feet above ground level that we all inhabit. And I've been learning about that world in a huge population of other people who've helped me to learn about learn about language and learn about human relationships. Um, not explicitly. I mean, obviously, I've, you know, some of it's been explicit, but actually an awful lot of that learning has just been kind of implicit in, in the background. Mm. But then behind me, there's billions of years of evolution. And what evolution has been doing is a version of machine learning. It's been trying out lots and lots of different approaches to building creatures that can exist in this environment, the environment that we all inhabit. And actually, you know, a lot of those were evolutionary dead ends and died out. And, but I was, um, myself and you and everybody listening to this was the product of that billions of years evolutionary process. And ultimately what it delivered was an individual into this world who both had some hardwired knowledge about the world. We don't know exactly what the limits of that hardwired knowledge were, you know, but I was, I was born with some hardwired knowledge about the world. But actually, more importantly, this evolutionary process had engineered me to be able to learn both about the physical world and also about other human beings and to exist both in the physical world of planet Earth, where we are now, the environment that we're in, but also in a world that's populated by other human beings. And that's what it delivered. That whole process was delivering uh, that individual who was capable of doing that. And when you look at that, I think I, I have exactly, when I consider that, I have exactly the same reaction of you. This is just an incredible uh, you know, we are incredible. We are all of us absolutely marvelous. And the idea that somebody could just sort of lock themselves away in the shed for a weekend and come up with artificial general intelligence, or that, or even that somebody was just going to, as I say, to go back to the Leo Szilard idea, the idea that somebody crossing a road would say, oh, yeah, this is how it works. That just seems to me to be implausible. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, it's reinforced for me exactly that sense of wonder about you know how incredible we are. Mike, our time has flown by. Thank you for uh, your clarity and your insight, and thank you for being on the podcast. It's really been a pleasure. Um, Professor Michael Wooldridge's book, The Road to Conscious Machines, The Story of AI, is out now. And listeners, remember there's a new bunker daily on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Tuesday. Don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying, for today only, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. And audio production was by me, the artificial intelligence that's replacing Alex Reese. The Bunker, Bunker Daily, Daily is a Podmasters, Podmasters production. production.